Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the CBS News Roundup ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Coming up, consternation over Alabama's high court ruling that frozen embryos are people. I'm angry. I'm sad. A massive AT&T outage affects tens of thousands. The more I tried to access my phone, the less I actually was able to do with it. In the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment, a new YouTube series uses humor to help fight HIV. And it can be very educational. It can be very helpful for other people who might be going through the same thing. I'm Allison Keys in Washington. Shockwaves in the world of reproductive health care as Alabama's all-Republican Supreme Court rules that frozen embryos are the legal equivalent of children. Now Alabama's largest hospital and some other providers are pausing in vitro fertilization treatments. CBS's Meg Oliver. I'm angry. I'm sad. Um, just a whole slew of things. 34-year-old Jasmine York turned to IVF to get pregnant, but now her dream of having another child has come to a sudden halt. Is IVF your last hope to have a baby? Yes, there is no other way. York got a phone call from her fertility doctor at the University of Alabama with the news. The hospital system is pausing all IVF treatments while it takes a closer look at the state Supreme Court's ruling that frozen embryos are considered people. In a statement to CBS News, the University of Alabama says it is saddened, but we must evaluate the potential that our patients and our physicians could be prosecuted criminally or face punitive damages for following the standard of care for IVF treatments. We asked CBS's Ed O'Keefe about the political fallout from the decision, as some Republicans say they are against it. No, it, it's, it's quite an incredible thing that has sprung up here in the last week and a reminder that after the repeal of Roe versus Wade, Virtually all of women's reproductive health is at risk of some kind of legal challenge or change. The Alabama State Supreme Court ruling defines embryos now as children, and it set off a debate amongst Republicans, most especially, almost immediately. Some who say we've got to introduce legislation that would only define them as children once they're implanted in a woman. Some who say, no, it should be what the state court said. You have Senate candidates in battleground states preemptively getting ahead of this by saying that they oppose the ruling. They don't want to see Congress stepping in to legislate or legalize or illegalize any aspect of trying to start a family. And what Democrats and abortion rights advocates have been calling out is the fact that, in essence, you've now seen a conservative Supreme Court and Republicans go after the ability to end a pregnancy and now, in essence, also going after the ability of women who can't do it otherwise to start a pregnancy and start a family. 
And that's where there's so much great concern and anger and chaos and resolve to ensure that this becomes a political matter this fall. Because they say voters of all sorts, men and women, Democrat and Republican, all across the country need to realize that if barriers aren't put up to stop this, uh, some things that people are quite used to being able to do or know could be an option for them won't exist anymore. CBS is at O'Keefe. Friday, former President Trump said he strongly supports IVF and called on Alabama lawmakers to protect access to the procedures. And the Biden administration called on Congress to restore reproductive health care protections in the wake of the ruling. Turning now to what could be one of the largest sexual assault prosecutions in the history of the U.S. Army. A doctor is facing allegations from 42 male patients. Correspondent Jonathan Vigliotti with our CBS News investigation. Videotaped interviews made by the Army's Criminal Investigation Division and obtained by CBS News detail disturbing accounts. He said, now I need you to drop trial. I'm thinking to myself, like, what the hell is this for? And I'm here for my neck. They say they're survivors of sex crimes at the hands of their doctor, Major Michael Stockin, a pain management anesthesiologist at Joint Base Lewis-McChord in Washington state. Charging documents obtained by CBS News show Stockin faces more than 50 counts of sexual misconduct while treating 42 patients, all of them men. Being in the military at the time for 19 years, I trusted the medical doctor I was seeing I trusted Dr. Stockton. We sat down with two of Stockton's accusers who are sharing their stories publicly for the first time. They asked to speak anonymously out of fear of retaliation. I knew something wasn't right after the first interaction, the first procedure I had with him. Dr. Stockton, he was face level with my groin um, and he started touching my, my genitals. You went in for a long-standing chronic issue of shoulder pain. What is a doctor doing inspecting you in an area down there near your groin. Exactly. I, I was uh, I was very confused. Both men, now retired from the Army, completed three combat tours. In the military, there's a term to put what happens to you inside your duffel bag, shove it down, and, and continue to march on. Mm. So I was willing to do that. I was willing to shove it into my duffel bag and march on. The Army told CBS News the investigation remains open. I think there are victims out there that might not even know they're victims. The scale of the case is historic for the military, according to their attorney, Ryan guilds how many potential victims are we talking about hundreds, in this case? hundreds. I, I'm, I'm convinced it's hundreds in a statement to cbs news stockins lawyer stated he is presumed innocent adding this legal fight is just getting started jonathan vigliotti cbs news los angeles a tragedy in florida this week as a seven-year-old girl dies after a hole she was digging on a beach north of miami collapsed on top of her and her nine-year-old brother who survived there is a little girl buried under the sand and they have not gotten to her yet. Digging with their bare hands, bystanders rushed to try to rescue a little girl buried after the hole in the sand she was playing in collapsed. Christina Bleckinger was there and tried to help. It was horrifying. My husband grabbed a bucket and I started helping. The boy, you can see his head. And even that took a long time to get out. He was like stuck under the sand and you could see him. The girl, we couldn't see. The child, identified as seven-year-old Sloan Mattingly, was playing with her nine-year-old brother on Tuesday at the beach in Lauderdale by the sea. Her family was visiting from Indiana. They were just together as a family, digging a hole to have fun in. The children were rushed to the hospital where the girl was pronounced dead. I do get the sense that this is the kind of thing that literally in a second it can happen. 
sand again is not going to stay in a stable manner at any time it's constantly moving just just really just like the ocean is but when this falls in on you um there's no escaping it it's it's very similar to an avalanche on the ski slopes where you're not going to be able to escape this once you're in there experts warn beachgoers not to dig deep holes in the sand but if you do fill it before leaving and do not dig a hole deeper than your knees this is one one bit of danger that you don't need to put yourself in Though rare, these accidents do happen. In fact, back in 2022, there were two similar deaths in other states in just one month. The sheriff's office says this case remains under investigation. Manuel Bajorquez, CBS News, Lauderdale-by-the-Sea, Florida. Coming up, President Biden and the border. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. A massive nationwide AT&T outage left customers with no service for much of Thursday. The FBI, FCC, and Department of Homeland Security are investigating, but so far there's no evidence a malicious attack was behind the problem. CBS's Lynn Kent. Tens of thousands of Americans discovered their cell phones on Thursday were basically useless. I see an SOS. Now I can't even use my GPS, my music call my wife, tell her where I'm going to be. From Chicago to Dallas and Boston to Los Angeles, more than 74,000 users on the nation's largest wireless carrier reported widespread problems. The more I tried to access my phone, the less I actually was able to do with it. Nobody had any communication. AT&T issued an apology to customers and said service had been fully restored. Nearly three quarters of U.S. adults live in households without a landline. So losing cell service in a natural disaster, for example, can cripple communications. The outage inundated emergency call centers with people dialing them up to test their phones. Massachusetts State Police posting that many 911 centers were flooded with these calls. And in San Francisco. Please don't call 911 to verify if your phone works if you don't have an emergency. The FBI is in contact with AT&T, and the FCC says it's actively investigating. But the National Security Council says there's no reason to think that this was a cybersecurity incident. Does this incident worry you about the future? I always worry about our dependency on technology. I think it's also a good wake-up call and just a reminder that we can't depend 100% all the time on the technology that we depend on. 100% of the time. So the good news here is is AT&T says the outage was caused from a glitch from a software update, not a cyber attack. The company called it an 
incorrect process that was used as we were expanding our network. Now, if you're stuck without cell service in an emergency, experts recommend you want to find a Wi-Fi connection to place a call. Use that emergency text function or call function on your phone. And always have a communications plan in place with your neighbors and your community members. There was a huge increase, though, in data breaches in the nation last year. Earlier this month, a children's hospital in Chicago was hit with a cybersecurity incident. We took our systems offline, including phone, email, electronic medical record system, and MyChart, our patient family portal. Last year, casino and resort owner MGM was hacked, shutting down slot machines and exposing customers' private info. The two cases are part of a massive increase in cyber attacks. The previous all-time high was in 2021. We're up 72% from that all-time high. We had more than 3,000 data breach notices issued in 2023. Previously, we'd never seen more than a little over 1,800. James Lee with the Identity Theft Resource Center says those 3,205 data breaches reached more than 353 million victims. Why do you think we're seeing such a steep increase? You know, it's never any one thing, but we know that they're testing new kinds of attacks. Lee says while the criminals have gotten more sophisticated, the notices sent to victims have not. More and more data breach notices don't have any information about what happened. And that's risky because that means other businesses and individuals can't protect themselves. That's why Lee says consumers need to take preventative steps. First and foremost, use a unique password for every website and application. The easiest way to do that is with a password manager. And always use two-factor authentication. And Lee says freezing your credit can prevent criminals from opening credit cards or other accounts in your name. Christine Lazar, CBS News, Los Angeles. President Biden is considering executive action to restrict access to asylum and crack down on migrants crossing the southern U.S. border. CBS's Nancy Cordes. What the White House is floating here would be a return to the Trump border policy in one very significant respect. It would deter migrants from coming to the U.S. by restricting access to the overloaded asylum program. This is a big development, especially for a Democratic administration. And officials are considering it because of the record numbers of migrant crossings over the past few years. 2.4 million migrants apprehended at the border just in the past fiscal year. And so now they're looking at a law known as 212F that has been on the books for more than 70 years. It allows the president to suspend the entry of foreigners when it's determined that their arrival is detrimental to the interests of the United States. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because the Trump White House used that same law to justify an attempted ban on visitors from some Muslim-majority countries. That faced legal challenges, and this almost certainly would again. So why would Mr. Biden attempt it then? Well, because he's gotten, gotten an earful from Democratic governors and mayors who say their cities are inundated by new migrants. He does not pull well on this issue, and it is an election year. White House officials say that a decision on whether to go this route could come in the next two weeks. A Texas judge has ruled that a high school's punishment of a black student for refusing to change his hairstyle does not violate a new state law barring race-based hair discrimination. It's put a lot of emotions on me, you know, anger, sadness. For almost his entire junior year, Daryl George has been suspended from regular classes for wearing his long hair in twisted locks on the top of his head. 
You can't be a child like everybody else, you know. You see everybody else walking around, talking, laughing. You can't do that. Barbers Hill School District said it's the length of George's hair that violates the dress code for males because it extends below the top of a t-shirt collar, the eyebrows, or the earlobes when let down. But George's attorney argued in court Thursday that school code violates the state's Crown Act, which prohibits discrimination against a hair texture or protective hairstyle commonly or historically associated with race. But a district judge ruled in favor of the school district, saying the Crown Act does not protect hair length, adding that it is not his job to rewrite the law. There's a difference between rewriting text and interpreting ambiguous text. It didn't say length is irrelevant with respect to the statute. It simply was silent on the question of length. When you grow locks, braids, or twists, it takes a certain amount of length. State Representative Ron Reynolds, who helped write the Crown Act, testified Thursday that although the length is not specified in the law, it is inferred with the very nature of the style. The school district said other students with locks comply with its length policy. Georgia's attorney said they will appeal the decision. Omar Villafranca in Dallas. Atlanta City Council wants to crack down on who can enter the world's busiest airport. WSB's Jonathan O'Brien explains it's about the unhoused who shelter there. You'll still be able to drop family or friends off inside the airport, but this legislation bars people not there on official business from staying for a long time. It is up to us to put our best foot forward. Councilman Byron Amos tells me the bill allows law enforcement to ask and potentially remove violators. Amos says it's about the safety of passengers and airport workers. Coming up, new sanctions for Russia. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. Friday morning, President Biden addressed the National Governors Association event at the White House and announced 500 new sanctions against Russia. In response to Putin's brutal war of conquest, in response to... Uh, Alexei Navalny's death, because make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Alexei's death. Yesterday, I met with Alexei's wife and daughter in California, where his daughter attends college. Alexei was an incredibly courageous man. His family is courageous as well. I assured them his legacy will continue to live around the world, and we in the United States are going to continue to ensure that Putin pays the price for his aggression abroad and repression at home. CBS's Weijia Jiang, noting that the U.S. and its allies already have thousands of sanctions on Russia, lists some of the new targets. Russia's leading maker of specialty steel used in Russia's attack helicopters are sanctioned, as well as a railroad logistics company. We know that the processing for the Central Bank of Russia is also sanctioned. The goal is to try to make it very financially difficult for Russia to fulfill these transactions and to have access to certain money. The president also blasted House Republicans for failing to pass a bill funding Ukraine. There's no question, none, none. If the speaker called for a vote in the House, it would pass easily today. Instead, they went on vacation. This as the world marks two years since Russia invaded Ukraine. CBS's Charlie Daggett looks back. The mood here is just about as gloomy as it's been since the war began. They're desperate for ammunition. Many feel like they've been forgotten, and Ukraine has just suffered one of its toughest losses of the war. 
The fall of Avdivka followed months of relentless bombardment and enormous losses on both sides. Ukrainian troops were overwhelmed and outgunned, and a commander said outnumbered seven to one. President Vladimir Putin, seen at a photo op aboard a nuclear-capable bomber, had mocked what he called Ukraine's chaotic retreat. The Ukrainian military blamed the defeat on perilously low ammunition. In a plea for more U.S. support at a summit in Munich, President Volodymyr Zelensky hedged his political bets. And if Trump, Mr. Trump, if he will come, I, I'm ready even to go with him to the front line. As defiant as day one of the war, when he took a selfie on the streets of the capital saying, we're here protecting the country, glory to Ukraine. We were here too during those first terrifying days and nights of airstrikes. Military analysts predicted the country would fall in a matter of weeks. The brutal slaughter of civilians in the suburbs of Bucha and Irpin, when Russian tanks advanced to within a few miles of the capital itself. Then came the fight back. With U.S. and Allied support, Ukraine launched lightning counteroffensives. Yet, despite an estimated investment of $75 billion in U.S. support alone, it's become a grinding war of attrition. The Ukrainian government stopped sharing the number of its military dead long ago. But the ever-growing number of fresh graves across the front lines tells a story in itself. Another milestone in a different war. CBS's Holly Williams. The Israel-Hamas war is in its fifth month, and Gaza lies in ruins. Nearly 30,000 have been killed, according to the Hamas-run health ministry. Now Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has presented a plan for what comes after the war, including local officials in charge of public order, but no word on who they would be, while Israel maintains security control over the Gaza Strip. It's in contrast with what the U.S. has long wanted, a two-state solution, including a Palestinian state in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, with hopes it'll finally bring peace by giving Palestinians more control over their future and discouraging extremism. Two nations, two people living side by side. Ami Ayalon was wounded in action while fighting for Israel's military and is the former head of Israel's domestic security service. He also believes a Palestinian state would make Israel safer. Or the other alternative that we are confronting is a disaster to go on killing each other for hundreds of years. This is not the future that I wish to my children and, my, and, and grandchildren. But Prime Minister Netanyahu's plan says any future settlement with the Palestinians would be achieved through direct talks, and it rejects outside attempts to impose a Palestinian state. Ceasefire and hostage negotiations are expected to continue this weekend in Paris. For the first time in 50 years, an American spacecraft is back on the moon. It blasted off on a rocket last week and landed on Thursday. We can confirm, without a doubt, as our equipment is on the surface of the moon, and we are transmitting. A space milestone for a robotic lander named Odysseus, the first commercial moon landing. Ten miles to go. And the first American touchdown into lunar dust since 1972. 
Welcome to the moon. Intuitive Machines reports Odysseus landed upright, but final descent was a nail-biter. The spacecraft lost its navigational capability, but found it was riding with luck. Part of its cargo, a NASA navigational experiment. Flight controllers tapped into it to help guide the lander softly to the surface. This is the assembly room. When we visited the company last year, CEO Steve Altimus showed us that NASA instrument. This is actually helps with navigation. It's running independent of our navigation system, but this is NASA's entrant into how you do precision landing on the moon without GPS. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson. It was a NASA payload that saved the day. Odysseus targeted its landing near the moon's south pole, prized by NASA because its craters may contain ice, which would mean water, a necessity for deeper space travel. Now we're having these commercial companies go way out there to the moon, and they are serving as scouts ahead of us sending our astronauts. Odysseus has one week to work. Ultra-cold lunar night will set in and freeze its solar batteries. But what an arrival. Mark Strassman, CBS News, Atlanta. Also in space, astronomers have discovered what might be the brightest object in the universe. It's a quasar that shines 500 trillion times brighter than our sun. Plus, it has a black hole at its heart that's so big and growing so fast that it swallows the equivalent of a sun every day. Astronomer Jonathan McDowell is at the Center for Astrophysics, Harvard and Smithsonian. Our sun turns only about 1% of its mass into energy over 10 billion years. This quasar is taking tens of suns, turning them into energy every year. You don't want to be living next to that. McDowell says we're seeing this quasar as it was 12 billion years ago, before the Earth even existed. And by now, scientists think it's gone out. Coming up in the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment, using humor to fight a real problem. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Welcome to the Kaleidoscope with Allison Key segment, where every week we discuss issues including income inequality. This time we're talking about a new comedy show of sorts, Backseat Hot Seat, a limited YouTube series featuring celebrity drivers discussing everything from sexual health to HIV prevention. Comedian Matteo Lane is a co-host and joins us to talk about how unscripted, funny conversations, including education and intimacy, have the potential to save lives. I definitely wanted to be a part of it just because my entire life as a comedian is talking to all different types of people, all walks of life, whether that's I'm on the road doing my shows or I'm working at the Comedy Cellar in New York City. You know, for 15 years now, I've just been you know, inundated with so many different types of people. And it's something that I've really grown to love. I'm, it's not just me going on stage and telling jokes, but talking to different types of people is something that really fulfills me. And, you know, also, I've had a very interesting life. I'm 
queer and going to art school. That was definitely an eye opener of different types of people and expression and communities. And, you know, so it's just something that I felt really comfortable doing and really excited about. So tell me the premise of this basically is to help raise awareness about HIV, right? Yeah, it's basically, you know, it's it's basically setting up a campaign that seeks to normalize conversations about HIV prevention. I've got to ask, how is that going for you? Because having lived in New York and now living in D.C. and people would be like, what? So how, how do you make this work? Um, you know, you're educated and you have conversations with people who are open with having conversations with you. And I think as long as you're everyone is all under the understanding of, hey, we're just going to be open and talk about our feelings, life experiences, and we're not talking about shame and there's no judgment here. You know, you can have very fun, very educational, very eye-opening conversations. In a nation that's as divided as this nation is, for everything from LGBTQ, from transgender, for all the states that are doing their laws that advocates say are attacking that community, how do you how do you get in a in a car and have a conversation without worrying that you're with somebody who's so against that they're going to leap out and not listen to what you have to say? You know, I think the trick to that is is just being true to yourself and I think that that will always rise to the top. I think that people can have a preconceived notion about whomever you are, whether you're gay, trans, et cetera. And I think as long as you just come out and you are yourself and you're talking to other people, I I really do think if anyone takes the time to sort of, especially these conversations, you'll see people are more alike than they are different. And even as a comedian, not to harp back on the fact that I'm a comic, but look for a lot, 15 years of comedy, there's a lot of times I'm the only gay man on the lineup or the only gay man in the room. So I found that comedy is a real interesting way of bridging the gap because people might sit there and think, I don't know any gay people. I don't know what to expect. And after five minutes, they think, huh, we're more alike than we are different. And, you know, in some cases, I think people may have watched, I don't know, whatever they watch that makes them feel whatever they feel about queer people. But now maybe after seeing five minutes of me and laughing or another queer comic and laughing, they might think of that person instead in the future. So I think it just comes down to always be yourself and, you know, never don't back down on that. And I think humor is a great way of connecting people. So for those that haven't seen the trailers for this or, or the show itself, how does this work? I mean, people just get into your car or you're waving people down on the street or how does this work? <laughs> I drive around, and I say, get in. And then <laughs> can you imagine? I mean, oh, my, especially in New York City. Think about the people that you would pick up and have conversations. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, basically, yeah, we have people in the car and I just have conversations. I'm taking them from one place to another, which, you know, I will say gays. We're not the best drivers. But, you know, I <laughs> I drive people to their location. And in, that mean, in the meantime, we just have a conversation. We might talk about sex. We might talk about dating. Might talk about more difficult things that other people otherwise would feel more closed off to talking about. But, hey, we sit there. We have a conversation. We have a few laughs. And we have a good time. So I'm curious. How, how do you find the people? Are they screened or... You know, do people send you photos and bios? How how does this all work? Well, I mean, you know, the industry, I think that some of the people, you know, they they, they're screened, of course. You know, imagine (laughs) I was imagine we had cameras and I was just filming random people on the street. I would be arrested. Well, yeah, there's that. (laughs) But yes, they're screened. They're all a part of this, too. They're all they're all 
in the understanding of we're going to have uh yeah very interesting conversations about some about hiv preventative some about um different medications about life experiences and then honestly just some fun ones about dating getting ready going out you know the kind of people that they date sex you know we have a lot of fun so what are okay i'm going to ask you about two conversations what is maybe the funniest conversation you've had and what is one of the most difficult conversations you've had Honestly, I think the funniest conversations are always when it comes down to talking about what kind of person the other person is interested in, because it always shocks me how we all have such different styles of dating, how we perceive ourselves, how we what we're into, what what kind of things make us attracted to others. And uh, I really think that those really bring up a lot of fun because people can even get kind of squirmish. Like even if I'm talking about the kind of men that I've dated, right? I mean, some of the men I've dated would make your skin peel off, but I think, the, <laughs> <laughs> but I just think the more open you are about it, it's it's sort of like a cleansing, you know what I mean? It's like, well, I can get that off my chest. And then everyone else has a story very similar. Like, oh, I dated this idiot or I dated this kind of person or I, you know, I like this in bed. So those those are the more I would say hot and juicy topics that can get us to laugh. And what was your other question? I forget. I I asked if you had had a difficult conversation or a conversation that surprised you. I don't know that difficult, but I think that it's definitely when people talk about maybe their status or people talk about uh you know coming out of the closet. I think in general people people well maybe people who are not in the queer community can kind of think that these are very taboo topics but i think that this was a great time and a great situation to sort of show hey you know people people have processed their own pain and people have processed their own trauma and they can have a real light about it and it can be very educational it can be very helpful for other people who might be going through the same thing so to sort of go back to your question earlier i think not even just exposing conversations about whether it's hiv or being queer you know these kind of conversations maybe people outside of the queer community can be uh, uncomfortable with maybe there's people inside of the queer community who are also uncomfortable with it and so i think it's really good to just be open about it and then it makes it makes it feel less um, scary, makes it feel less uh, uh, taboo and just goes to show we're all human. Lots of people are living with all different types of lives and it's okay. That's Mateo Lane, co-host of the series Backseat Hot Seat, running on YouTube right now. Coming up, where the whales get their songs. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. We're continuing our celebration of Black History Month with the story of Wendell Scott. His name is known to many across Virginia and in the racing world. WBDJ-TV's Michaela Shelton tells us about the first African-American to win a high-level NASCAR race. It is certainly one of the um, greatest underdog stories to ever exist. Wendell Scott was born in Danville in 1921. So his prerequisite learning came from his father was a mechanic and a chauffeur for the two wealthiest families of the time in Danville that shared the first automobile. A lot of people don't realize that that's how he got his 
kind of interest in motorsports. After serving in World War II as a mechanic for three years, he started his racing journey at the Danville Fair. Though Scott hit many roadblocks due to racism and discrimination, his talent and perseverance led him to the NASCAR Grand National Race in Jacksonville, Florida, where he defied all odds. As he was racing around the track, he noticed his name disappeared from the scoreboard. Once he got in first place, they took everybody's name off of the scoreboard. He received the first place prize money, but they refused to give him the trophy. The thing that was done at the time is the winner would get to kiss the beauty queen. And at that time, the fear is that it would cause a race riot if he was brought into victory lane and treated the same way that the other drivers were treated when they won. But that only fueled his determination. Scott continued to set records and even ranked 11th in the nation in 1965. But it wasn't until 2021 that NASCAR presented the Scott family with the Jacksonville 200 trophy Wendell won 58 years ago. Wendell's grandson says though he's not here to see the moment, he's glad his grandfather is finally getting the recognition he deserved. It was bittersweet because it's something that I wish that he and my grandmother could have experienced together. Uh, but I was proud of the progress that was made. Although his drive came to a stop in 1990 due to cancer, his legacy continues to live on through the Wendell Scott Foundation his family started in 2010. Then in 2015, Wendell Scott was inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. We oftentimes are asked, why do we not have the appearance of being more upset about things that happened in my grandfather's career? And it's not that we don't probably harbor any of those feelings, but he taught us to lean towards who we are in totality. And if we can do that in moments of crisis, it will lead to moments of triumph. This week, a huge birthday for a resident of a Georgia senior living community. Lillian Mortimer just celebrated 107 trips around the sun. WANF-TV's Sawyer Bussey reports. I think it's hard to understand where the years have gone and that anyone can actually live this long and be able to enjoy life the way life is. You might have an idea in your head of what 107 must be like. Lillian is here to set the record straight. We're at Sterling Estates, a senior living community in Marietta. Lillian is swimming this morning at the pool. She loves the pool. She recently fell and broke her hip. She's doing some exercises to continue her healing process three or four surgeries, all of which were, uh, could have been fatal, and I survived them. And the last was colon cancer. So um, apparently I'm a survivor. Her friends are ready to celebrate her. Today we have a Lillian-themed art class. Everything is from 1917. Lillian was born in New Jersey. We got through uh, the Depression like everybody else, which was poor, got through the war, which was everybody else was in that too. And that's when I got married. It's easy to converse with Lillian. Her memory is sharp. Her jokes are funny. She's mobile. The secret to her long life? Well, I used to say chocolate candy. I don't say that anymore. I just say that I've done my part in trying to stay healthy. Lillian is not the only centenarian here. There's a woman named Joyce. She's going to turn 104 at the end of February. 
there's proof now that you never know what you'll find online, even if it's a funny-looking shiny Lego piece that looks a bit like a mask of some sort. WTAJ-TV's Kristen Kleinfelter with the story. When the rare Lego was found, no one really knew what it was. The item was posted on ShopGoodwill.com for just $14.95. Little did they know what someone would pay for it. The final bid was $18,101. The second highest bid was $18,100. The price is leaving workers with a lifelong story. I mean, we've been talking about it all week. I really haven't even had a chance to think about it, but it's pretty amazing. It just shows you can never find, you never know what you're going to find on shopgoodwill.com. And the money stays local to the Clearfield County area. We can keep the funds local. So that means that all the funds from this, just like anything sold in our stores, is going to come back to our mission. So it creates jobs, it creates opportunities, it gives people options. Finally, if you know me, you know I love Star Trek. And this week, I've got the opportunity to celebrate two of my favorite things. Leonard Nimoy as Mr. Spock. Space. The final frontier. And whales, which the Enterprise crew were trying to save in Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, where Mr. Spock makes a crucial connection to stave off disaster. Spock, as suspected, the probe's transmissions are the songs sung by whales. Whales? Specifically, humpback whales. So how cool that Earthbound scientists now think they figured out how whales communicate through song. The wonder of whales can capture the imagination, not just their majestic movements, but the melodies they make below the surface. The only way for these animals to communicate on the water is by sound, and so the only way for them to find each other is by sound. Sounds like this. Stirring an orchestra of haunting songs in the ocean, which have been a bit of a mystery until now. Larynx is no doubt are responsible for the sound production in these uh, this group of whales. Danish researchers studied voice boxes from three dead stranded baleen whales, including a humpback, taking their larynxes into the lab, blowing air through them to see what tissues might vibrate. They found whales use a cushion of fat and tissue that no other animal has to sing underwater. They did a fantastic job, I would say, at reconstructing the process by which sounds can be produced. Scientists also found the shipping industry drowns out whale songs, preventing the animals from talking to each other over long distances. If they can't find each other, they can't mate. And if they can't mate, there cannot be any population growth. Researchers hope the findings will strike a chord around the world to keep whales singing their songs. Ian Lee, CBS News, London. That's it for the Weekend Roundup. Thanks for listening. We want to get your feedback. Send us your thoughts and story ideas to Weekend Roundup at cbsnews.com. As always, you can find the program online on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Sarah Fishman is a technical supervisor, and Alan Penn provides production assistance. Have a great week. I'm Allison Keyes, CBS News. If you like CBS News Roundup, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert. 
And I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. And how long have you been the, the producer of this? We've been doing this for two years now. Okay. And and what is it like to attempt to uh, get feedback from me about the podcast? Be honest about how quickly I respond to emails. You actually respond to emails surprisingly fast. Really? I, I think you might be the only person I respond to. <laughs> respond too quickly. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. I expected I expected you to lay into me. Well, this was over the strike period. Oh, I had time. Yeah. See, that, that, does, that doesn't count. <laughs> sure, I responded to everything because responding to you, putting reruns up on the podcast was like a form of employment. Yeah. And I felt like I had something to get up for every yeah. day. So thank you for that. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.